There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the uh, Festival of Reading. Welcome to the Pointer Institute. And welcome to Right Lane. Today, we have the great good fortune to have Beth Macy here at the festival, and she was gracious enough to let us record this. So um, this will be on the podcast in a couple of weeks, so you can hear all her answers again there. <laughs> so my name is Maria Carrillo. I'm the enterprise editor at the Tampa Bay Times, and to the far left is Lane DeGregory, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter there. And in the middle, of course, is our guest speaker, Beth Macy. Uh, we all go back a long way. We started, uh, uh, well, we, we did all start our journalism careers in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lane and I used to work at the Virginian Pilot, which is in Norfolk on the southeastern coast. And at the same time, Beth was working at the Roanoke Times in southwest Virginia. And we actually did much the same kind of work. We love telling human interest stories. We love telling stories about our communities. And we got to know each other. We were sister papers. And so um, we were Beth Macy fans before all of you. <laughs> um, so as you probably know, she went from being a journalist to becoming an author. Um, today we're going to talk about her third book, Dope Sick. Um, first one was called Factory Man, and about an uh, American furniture maker who was battling to, to keep jobs here in America. The second one was called True Vine, which was a crazy story about a pair of twins who were uh, black and albino and may have been sold or taken for the freak show circuit back in another time. And of course, Dope Sick talks about the op opioid crisis in America. So we thought we'd start by just asking Beth to talk a little bit. Of course, she's a journalist. She's still a journalist. Um, kind of that evolution from daily newspapers and daily, daily work to, to becoming an author. Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for coming. And I like to begin all my talks uh, about Dope Sick by just acknowledging that there are probably people in the room who have suffered because of this epidemic. And you know, we lost 70,000 people in 2017 to drug overdose death, about three quarters of them opioids. And every one of them a tragedy, not just those folks we lost, but their families and friends. So just kind of give a moment for that. Um, Dopesit grew out of some reporting I did initially for the Roanoke Times in Virginia. Better volume. Can we better volume? Okay. Mm -hmm. Dopesit grew out of a three-part series I wrote in 2012. Uh, I was the Families Beat reporter for the Roanoke Times. I had um, mostly, I had written about marginalized com communities in the city. Uh, veterans with PTSD, immigrants, refugees, caregivers for the elderly, but this was a story that grew out of um, 
a nascent heroin cell of users in the wealthiest section of town. And readers kind of literally spit out their coffee and went, what? Wealthy white kids are doing heroin? We had no idea. Um, and I actually pitched it to be my second book. I had first written uh, the book Factory Man that also grew out of some reporting I had done on the aftermath of globalization and some of these dying factory towns in uh, rural Virginia. Um, and when I set about to tell that story initially, we knew that Martinsville and Henry County had the highest unemployment rate in Virginia for like a dozen years. And um, I set out to say, to show our readers what happens when half of the jobs go away in one community. And what's that look like on the ground? And as I was starting casting about doing my reporting, I took a friend out who knew a lot about furniture, because uh, uh, he had a furniture store. And he sort of gave, set, set it out in a two-hour uh, breakfast about, you know, creative destruction and you know if we all get lower prices when things are made in China that's that's good for the economy and I'm like yeah but what about all the people that lost their jobs and he had a different point of view but he said you know there's somebody who didn't close his factory and not only that he he sued China in a court of international trade to keep his factory going and so I said the question that Lane and I always want to know when we're going to do a good story and that is well, what's he like? Is he a good talker? Now, am I allowed to say a bad word? Here? Oh, yeah. We you are. On the podcast. I think okay. this is an adult crowd. Okay. <laughs> All right. And my friend said, oh, yeah. And there's a family feud story. You're going to love this story. But when I said, is he a good talker, he says, he says things in this deep southern Virginia drawl. The effing chai comms aren't going to tell me how to make furniture. <laughs> and I was like... Oh, dude, I've got to go meet this guy. So, so I go down to Galax. I get a hotel. Like, the paper lets me stay in a hotel, which was like, like you know, I had to sell it, like, for that. And um, I go down, and I spend two days with him in the factory. And when I go in, he says, he takes one look at me, and you can tell he's thinking, what the hell is the newspaper thinking, sending this damn hippie down here to interview me? <laughs> but this damn hippie was prepared, and I knew a lot about his family and the industry. And when I got back to my hotel the first night, I was so excited. Like, normally I would be just exhausted, but I was so excited about the possibility of the story that I type up my notes, and I sent them to my editor, Carol Tarrant, my, my then editor. And at, like, 10.18 p.m., and by 10.30, she said, oh, my God, this is a great story. This is a worldwide, global story. You could chase it all the way from Bassett, Virginia, to China, to Washington, D.C., where this big legal battle unfolded. And then you've got this almost Faulknerian main character. And I thought, hey, it, 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 and literally, when I, you know, we pay attention when the hair on the back of our neck stands up. And I thought, this could be my first book. So after it ran, I, I found out. That day? That day. Wow. And I didn't really have a goal of writing a book, um, but I just thought, this is, this is a big story. And you could learn a lot about the history of our country and the history of business and industry. And I mean, I go back to 1902 when the southern furniture makers stole furniture making from New York and western Michigan because they had cheaper wage 
you know, uh, people wanting to join the cash economy after the Civil War and sharecroppers and former slaves, and they had woods. So they could, it's just like what China did to them 100 years later, but in a different country. And so there was a, just a deep vein of storytelling, and he was, he was almost impossible to deal with because he was such a control freak. <laughs> but a good character, then. A great character. He would call me out of the blue. I never, ever had to care call him. He, he, so one day he called seven times, and um, uh, so many stories. I, I would, so I wouldn't have, I would just have a list of questions I would ask when he would call. And I don't know why I did this, but every time I would, uh, he would call me, he wouldn't know when he was going to call, I would just start an email to myself. And in the subject line, I would put the date, JB3, John Bassett III, and maybe a few keywords. And then I stuck it over in a folder, just as a different way to keep track of it. And one day we had this long conversation, and about five minutes after he calls me up, he goes, wait a minute, are you recording me? Because <laughs> you just sent me an email. And you wrote everything down, even my dirty jokes. <laughs> uh, and I said, I'm a reporter. You know I'm a reporter. I'm taking notes every time, and I'm typing. I'm not recording, but I'm typing. And yeah, I'm getting Did everything you said. No, it was an accident. <laughs> it was just a brain fart. And but I could. It was like my office is in the south-facing part of the house where the air conditioner doesn't work very good. And I just remember a, like a sweat bead coming down my forehead. He goes, "You have put me on the defense." <laughs> Beth, how long had you been a reporter, a daily reporter, before you ever thought, like, dude, I should do a book? Well, really, it was meeting him that inspired it. And I just enjoy the process so much because I love doing the long form and the series work. And, uh, but I started in 1986. I went to journalism school, worked in Columbus, Ohio, then Savannah, Georgia, then Roanoke, where I, where I wasn't going to stay very long because uh, most people move up and out quickly, right? You know, like two years. I wasn't going to stay. I was so cocky. I said, don't put my name on the list for the good parking lot because I'm not going to be here that long. <laughs> and I'm still there. I'm still there. It's still in Roanoke. I quit. Because she um, met a man. I did meet a man at a bar. <laughs> and um, I quit my job in 2014 after I sold, right before Factory Man came out, but before, uh, but after I sold um, the proposal for True Vine, the racial history story. So. so this has just been kind of an extension of what you did as a journalist, because you did a lot of long form work. You did a lot of series, yeah. you did. So these topics just felt bigger to you? They just felt like they had that yeah, kind of potential? And, yeah, and my friend Ralph Barrier, who was a reporter, uh, f feature writer, who had written a book before me, and so I did like just kind of what we do when you don't know how to do something, you call and interview other people who have. <laughs> and Ralph had done a book, he helped me get an agent, he showed me his proposal. And he basically said, it's just like one very, very, very long feature story. <laughs> Only, you know, the parts have to talk to each other. And I remember when Factory Man came back to me with the first edit, there was a sense that the first half of the book was about Bassett and the first, Bassett, Virginia, and the second half was about China. And part of the instruction going forward was to combine them both and to go back and forth so that when John, little young John Bassett is delivering the newspaper, he's reading about what's happening with Chairman Mao and you know all this kind of stuff. And, and you learn to foreshadow a little bit more. And also, it's just a, it's like a big puzzle. So I have this product. And I swear I don't own stock in it, but um, I'm always raving about it. It's called Wizard Wall. 
and it's, uh, it looks like a white roll of wrapping paper, but it's shiny, and it's basically dry erase. And you can put it all over your wall. It's static clings, so you don't even need pins. And I have it all over my office. So when I start out on a project, I'll just keep track of everybody I'm interviewing that way or people I want to interview. And then as the structure starts to dawn on me, I'll start writing it that way. And, and, and then it turns into almost like an outline once I've done enough reporting. You know, you don't really know until you kind of know what, right. what it is. And you never know as much as you think you know, because the more you know, you just realize, oh my god, I didn't know anything. The more you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. And then, and then I just try to focus on the one chapter that I'm on at one time. That, that's, it's a little less daunting that way. So I was going to ask you that. You break it up. You think about like each chapter is kind of a story length chapter, right? Yeah. And even each section in the chapter, I, I tell students, like I write toward endings. Like I think it's more powerful if the end of a sentence has the power and the end of a paragraph has a little punch and definitely the end of a section and then the same way with the chapter ending, you want it to uh, be something that makes you, propels you onward. So, so in, on my little whiteboard that I have right next to me will be like, what are those little kickers? We call them kickers in journalism, like the little great ending. I'll sort of build a chapter around the moments or the kickers that I think have the most punch. And then I weave the context in, which I think of as spinach, a little bit, like the research, the data, and um, hopefully in a way that answers the questions as they come up in your mind, but don't go on and on for too long. Was Factory Man a newspaper story first? Yeah, it was a three-part series of, about the aftermath of globalization in Martinsville and Henry County. So, so the first piece was about John and his dumping petition. Dumping is what they call the, the rule of the, when the China joined the WTO, uh, it promised it would abide by the WTO rules, one of which was you can't sell your product for cheaper than the materials cost to make it, and that's what they were doing, and that's what he had to prove in his court of international trade. And then once he won, then the people that kept breaking that law were assessed duties. And so he ended up getting about 52 million the last time I checked, that, he, that, that other companies got, and just used to offset the losses because they had shut down their factories, but he actually pumped that money back into his factories. Yeah. Was, was, do you think it was easier having written the newspaper series first to know kind of a, a, a basic outline, or was it harder because you feel like you've already done this concise piece of it and then you gotta expand it? Um, I think it was easier because I had like a place to start. I had a relationship with them already, and then you know I could send that to people. I'm doing I'm doing a bigger piece about this. I could send the link out, and but I really did have this moment. The duty part was so complicated, and I really didn't want you to just shut the book because it was so boring. So I had to kind of look for the drama in that, including like his lawyer. Joe Dorn, who is this very formidable guy at King and Spalding, which is one of the biggest firms in America, you know, he gave me exactly one hour, you know, one non-billable hour, and um, and then I, you know, then I interviewed the lawyer on the opposing side. So trying to find characters within that that would allow me to tell this complicated business story, but also keep it fresh and interesting and, and narratively uh, propulsive. So that was fun. Talk a little bit about Dopesick and how that was different, <coughs> or the same, I guess, but what, what's different about this book than your other two books 
This yeah. is um, uh, obviously much different topic. Yeah. So Dobesick, I sort of pitched it as Factory Man Part 2. When I finished up my reporting for Factory Man, um, there was a lot of crime skyrocketing in these distressed communities, these former factory towns, former coal mining towns. And I sort of assumed it was jobless people committing these crimes, which it was. Things like a Bassett furniture plant that was long abandoned, uh, people would go in there and rip out copper wiring to resell on the black market, which I interpreted as they were needy, wanted to feed their families. But no, in fact, I learned later uh, that they were doing it out of fear of becoming dope sick. And that's the word that, that addicted people use to describe this excruciating withdrawal. And you know they all say it's like the worst flu times 100, and it's the worst feeling. And at the end of your journey, you're not doing heroin to get high. You're doing it not to be dope sick. And I kind of missed that. Uh, even though I had written a series about heroin in 2012 in the suburbs, uh, I sort of missed the connection between the OxyContin story and the heroin. I mean, OxyContin is just basically heroin in a pill. And the fact that in these distressed communities, which had been the most targeted by the pharmaceutical reps, um, because there were people with legitimate workplace injuries, they kind of swarmed into those places. And those folks who had previously had legitimate injuries and had been taking things like Lortep, Percocet, Vicodin, and had been able to get off at the end, OxyContin was much stronger. It was like the nuclear bomb of oxycodone. And they couldn't. And not only could they not get off, they also realized it was a way to pay their bills. If they would get multiple doctors to write them prescriptions, if they had Medicaid, it would cost a buck or two. And then they could sell those pills in the black market for a dollar a milligram. So eight There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The milligram pill went for $80, and that became a way to, buy, to pay the rent. And because, you know, we took these jobs away from these folks, and we gave them nothing in return. We basically... Uh, abandon the working class in this country. How hard was it? Lane and I were talking about this. You become, uh, not, you're not a major character in your book, but there are times when you're, you're a person driving tests to AA. Um, so it must have been pretty difficult to get emotionally invested in these families. I'm going to talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. So the main person that I follow in the book that I really get to know... and was this young woman named Tess Henry, uh, who grew up in uh, the wealthiest suburb of Roanoke. Dad was a surgeon, mom is a hospital nurse. Every advantage you could think of, uh, vacation home on Bobhead Island. Um, and she, actually you're gonna hear a little clip of her explaining how she got addicted, but she gets addicted and then quickly it cascades downhill to losing custody of her son, homeless, prostitution, just just almost hard to believe. And so when I first met her, I didn't know she was going to be a main character in the book. I hadn't even written the proposal yet, but I said, 
I know if I hang out with you, I can learn from you. How would you feel about we check in once a week? And she needed a ride to her NA meetings, which she had to go to as a condition of getting her medication-assisted treatment, or buprenorphine, which is a, uh, a maintenance drug that uh, quells cravings and uh, reduces overdose death and, and other bad things. And so she said, sure. And so I would record her with her permission. I would pick her up on Sunday afternoon. She would put her baby in the back seat of my little Honda Fit. And so you, you hear, like, when we're, I would put my phone on record in the cup holder, and we would just talk. And, and then sometimes I would carry her baby around the back of the room when he got fussy. And after a while, she kind of fell out with her mother, and then she was kind of couch surfing, and eventually she was homeless. And one time she reached out to me late at night from a, I later learned, a, a drug house, and said, please come get me. And I didn't see it right away, um, but I saw it about an hour after she sent it. And it's like, what do you do in that situation? Like, I took her to her meetings when it was convenient for me to get information, but when she needs me, what do I do? You know? And what's that line? Um, Walt Harrington, who's one of my favorite writers at the Washington Post magazine, uh, said, you're not doing your job as a narrative writer unless you're getting really close to that line and struggling with what to include, what not to include, how to behave. And so I would just kind of take it case by case. And in that instance, I talked to my husband about it. We decided it was dangerous, perhaps. And I forwarded her note to her mother and her peer recovery coach. But I felt really bad about it, and we never talked about it again. The next time I saw her, neither one of us brought it up. Do you want to play that clip now? Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, I think that's the hardest part sometimes, when you, you involve yourself in someone's life to such a, a depth, and then they need you, and it's hard to extricate yourself or know yeah. where that line is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so David's going to play a, a three-minute trailer. So the book ends, um, Tess is murdered. She's sent out to Las Vegas for treatment, and uh, she bombs out of that. And then she's homeless in Vegas, which is a lot different than Roanoke, Virginia. And um, she gets involved in some drug and prostitution gangs. And, and so a couple months after, the book ends with her death. And a couple months later, her mother and I, we always meet at Mellow Mushroom. And we have <laughs> the sh Holy Shiitake Pizza and an IPA. And uh, we would, because it's halfway in between her house and my house. And we decided we would go out uh, and try to find out what happened to her daughter and like rewalk her final steps. And so that's what we did. So this is a six part Audible original. It came out October 3rd. And it's called Finding Tess, uh, Mother's Search for Answers in a Dope Sick America. Um, and David, would you mind playing it? Thanks. I don't have a problem talking about it at all, especially if, you know, it could help someone. I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. It, it. it is what it is, and it happened, and I'll be an addict for the rest of my life. In 2012, Tess Henry was a typical 23-year-old. She took a break from college and was working part-time as a waitress. She partied, she drank, sometimes a little too much. Her friends were into popping pills, but not Tess. She had been studious, 
In high school, she was an honor roll student and a basketball player. She dreamed of being a writer. Then one day, she went to urgent care for a simple case of bronchitis. And they gave me codeine, cough syrup, and then hydrocodone. Were you aware that they were opiates? Not really. They helped me, and it wasn't until it was time for me to stop taking them that I started feeling really shitty. Like anxious? Well, I was having withdrawals. When she stopped taking the pills after 30 days, Tess felt awful. She had diarrhea, vomiting, and crushing anxiety. She was dope sick. 30 days, that's all it took for Tess to become one of the 2.6 million Americans addicted to opioids. It was like the Dementors in Harry Potter. It was like they just swarmed in and said, I want you, I want you, and I want you. This disease, um, it's the worst thing that can happen to somebody. I describe it sometimes as watching your loved one just slowly drown. I'm Beth Macy, and I started reporting on the opioid crisis seven years ago. I followed Tessa's journey from that first doctor's visit to heroin, motherhood, homelessness, and prostitution. Where did you shoot up? Marks right there. That's the only vein oh. that I would really get. So you do it with your left hand? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was Tess who showed me how society fails people with addiction, how we look away, how we abandon them. She even predicted her own death, but she had no idea her story would end like this. At the bottom of a dumpster, thousands of miles from home. Together, her mother and I retraced her final steps. You know, you can look in this nasty, dirty dumpster I think that's where my beautiful daughter was laying naked, beaten, but it's surreal. This is Finding Tess, a mother's search for answers in a dope-sick America, an Audible original available October 3rd. Thank you. She sounds a lot older than she was, right? Yeah, Gosh, she was she 28 when she died. Wow, yeah. Um, talk about the aftermath a little bit of this book and what kind of reaction and what's happened since. Uh, with the case or just? Just, just what kind of reaction you've gotten from people. I, uh, I, uh, and of course you've done this to kind of follow through. But. Yeah, I mean the, the, the reaction, I mean the book has it's done really well. It's, it's sold better than the first two books combined. I think it came at a moment where you know you have Purdue and Johnson & Johnson and all these opioid distributors in the news, some days like five times in one day. And I think if you want to understand what led up to all these, the book uh, is being viewed as a way to see how do we get here? I mean, OxyContin came out in 1996. How do we end up in the midst of the worst drug epidemic in the history of our nation? And um, kind of the nicest thing that, I've had two really great things. You You know, there's always, There's always people in my signing line that come up with tears in their eyes, and they want you to sign in memory of their son or their daughter. Um, One woman told me, one woman in recovery said, I didn't understand that I was part of a bigger story until I read your book. Before that, I thought I was just a fuck up. So 
that was pretty awesome. And just this week, I was speaking at Aquinas College, which is a Catholic, small Catholic college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, started by Dominican nuns. And one of the nuns, who's an administrator and a nurse, came up to me and she said, you know, I'm really progressive. I thought I was really progressive, but your book taught me empathy. Wow. That, and she said, I didn't, I didn't really understand it until I read your book. I told my husband on the phone, he goes, oh, you're done. You can retire on exactly. that. You taught a non-empathy? That's about the best compliment, right? <laughs> but, but you shared with us last night, too, that you've been asked to testify before Congress. And I, I think I would love you to talk a little bit about, as reporters, you don't ever know where your story is going to take you. Or no. You became the national expert on this topic. Did you expect that kind of? No. I mean, I got really, like, after... Test eyes on, I mean, I got the day, the, the day after Christmas, her mother calls me, and she's in tears, and she said, I'm so sorry to have to make this call. And the book had already been buttoned up, edited, legal reviewed, and everything, and then I went back and wrote, like, an epilogue about what happened, and she let me, I mean, she, they let me go to the funeral home when she picked out the urn, when it took funeral workers two days to prepare her body. She had been beaten so badly for her mother to say goodbye to her. Her mother let me go in the room. It was just me and her mother and her granddad to say goodbye to her. And um, so I was, I was really reeling in between that time, that was January, was like she was actually, her funeral was on her, what would have been her 29th birthday. And then the book came out in August and I found myself just becoming more vocal and more vocal. So in April, I was invited to speak to the Virginia Tech Carilion uh, Research Institute, and they have a new medical school that's, uh, and that's our nonprofit hospital system uh, and our uh, Virginia Tech uh, kind of combining in, in this medical school that uh, seems to be really good by all accounts. But you know, I watched tests go in and out of that hospital for overdose. I watch her go in and out for abscess. At one point, she gets hepatitis C. Not one time did they ever deal with her opioid use disorder. And in fact, when the book goes to print in August, there's still a three-week wait to get into their MAT program, which is what science says is the best way to prevent overdose and relapse and death and criminal behavior. So the science is super clear on that. But we're just not making it as accessible as the opioid pills were, or at a scale that mirrors the scale of the epidemic. So I was invited to address this group of doctors and medical school students, and I was really shaking still. And I was also nervous about like these billionaires, you know, what these pharma, I mean, that's kind of like me and my kids' extra bedroom that's in college, like taking on, I don't know, it was scary. Yeah, it was scary. So, but I was really worked up that day, and I said, I feel like any of y'all doctors in the room who ever took a free item from a pharma pharmaceutical company, even post-it notes and pens, should feel morally compelled to become part of the solution. Only 5% of doctors in America have bothered to become wavered to prescribe this medication. It's, they shouldn't even have a waiver, but they do. And so it's this idea they, they don't want, quote, addicts in their waiting room. Well, guess what? They're there. And um, when I said that, y'all should be compelled to become part of the solution, um, it was crickets. Nobody 
nobody, I mean, actually, they, they ended up, my microphone kind of went out at that point, and then some other panelists got to go on, and I was just like, <laughs> super furious. And then I, so I found myself sort of stepping out, and when I went to do the podcast, I had heard that the hospital, even though they didn't say anything to me at the time, had started offering on-demand buprenorphine in the ER, and they had beefed up their MAT program, and so you hear me in the podcast in 2017, because I record all my interviews, ask the head of the ED, why don't they do that? And he says, well, it's just treating a drug with another drug. That's not within our purview. But in 2019, I went back to him and I said, Dr. Burton, I hear you've changed your policy. And he says, yeah, we got everybody wavered, 24-7 uh, coverage. And in the first month, they got 24 people into treatment. And I said, what's that feel like? He said, I feel like doing mental cartwheels every day. So he totally changed his mind. And he said, and as he's talking about it, he goes, well, we read your book. <laughs> and then we looked at the research. And so Tess says, like in the podcast, the very first time I interviewed her in 2015, she says, well, talks about how she got addicted at urgent care and says, what we need is urgent care for the addicted. And it sort of went over my head, but like she knew what she needed from the first time I talked to her. We, as a society, aren't used to allowing those folks to have a voice, or e even myself. I didn't, I didn't listen to her the way um, I should have. You've got another book in the working, maybe. Do you want to talk about the next evolution of this story? Yeah. Um, I don't want to say too much, but I do want to say that as I've traveled around the country, I've been writing about solutions to the opioid crisis. Um, I'm speaking, and then people will tell me things, and then I'll follow up. So my next book is going to be, um, it's going to hopefully have a little more positive end to it, and it's going to be about innovators on the ground. So I've been spending time, like in rural North Carolina, in um, uh, rural Indiana, so rural places, especially some of these distressed communities, have 65% higher overdose rates. And often they have, uh, they have less access to treatment than the cities, and they have fewer things, places like syringe exchanges and places where addicted people can go and be kind of brought in off the streets and given help. And so I've been writing about some of these, um, I have a piece coming out in the Atlantic in a couple months about a woman in Indiana who grew up in eastern Kentucky, which is kind of where the, was the one of the birthplaces of the opioid crisis, and has figured out how to get, in a really rural conservative community, has figured out how to get MAT uh, to people and is having great results and just sort of through sheer will. You know, we, we just basically, we don't have enough leadership at the state and federal level, and the people that are making a difference on the ground are sort of doing it in spite of uh, what's happening with our government. We still have 14 states that haven't passed the Medicaid expansion, and that's the, been the number one tool for getting people help. So, Beth is gonna be available for, and signing books, um, but our time is done. Thank her, please. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry you didn't get to talk much. I'm, no, such, a, I'm such a chatter.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.